Welcome to the culture of you. Meaningful dialogue with me and my favorite people. All right. Welcome to the culture of you. I am here today, your host, Karen Hewitt, and I have a very special guest today. We are celebrating National Women's History Month. We are celebrating National Social Worker Month. And on this last episode of March for me, I am having another wonderful social worker. Matter of fact, the NASW Ohio Social Worker of the Year. She is a therapist, clinical director, consultant, training and workshop facilitator, TEDx speaker. And she's just a really, really cool friend. I get to be in my AALA cohort with her. It's Stephanie Starks. What's up, Stephanie? What's up, Karen? I'm so (laughs) excited. We have vibe from like moment one. I'm like, I like her. Yes, I'm so glad you're here with us today, with me today. And we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. But I first want to ask you, what made you want to come on the Culture of You podcast? Because I like you. (laughs) So, and honestly, I'm not the per. I'm a friendly person, but I don't befriend everyone. So when I feel a connection with somebody or a vibe, or I think, oh, I wish that was my friend, or I like that person. I want to hang out with that person. Yeah, that's what made me want to be on your podcast. Because I'm like, oh, I want to be her friend. I like her. (laughs) Yes. And so we are in African-American leadership academy and in our we're in separate cohorts but we're in the same uh year so there's Mm -hmm. two cohorts and we get to spend some time together so I've gotten to spend a little bit of time with Stephanie I can define this but I'm going to ask you so if you had to define your vibe let's start with personally as a Mm -hmm. person what would you define yourself or how would you define your vibe man I have a wicked and sometimes even dirty an inappropriate sense of humor and people I'm close to know that. Um, So I I have a, I would say an irreverent vibe at times. Okay. Um, Funny, uh, honest and transparent Mm -hmm. vibe. Um, And I'm very personable and friendly, like welcoming. Yes. You know, I I like people to feel comfortable and safe and that might be the therapist in me. And then, you know, I have, um, and I think this goes to the irreverence. I have like kind of a potty mouth. So people mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable with know that. <laughs> I hope we see some of that today. <laughs> cool. So, okay. So let's go to, to the professional realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a therapist. You have your own uh, con- therapist. Private practice. Organiza- Is it a private practice? Okay. Yeah. Cool. I was like, I know you got staff and everything like that. I don't want to call yes. it org. Um, But tell me about you as a leader and professionally. So I will start with who I am professionally and as a a therapist. Um, I've always had a really strong work ethic. I'm definitely a worker, um, whether it's a job, whether I'm working for someone or I'm volunteering, people tend to like want me on their team because I don't just talk a lot. Like I'll back it up with action. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really big on service. Uh, being supportive, compassionate, understanding. Um, I take pride in providing judgment-free zones for um, clients and even peers, because I think we all need that. We all need a safe space where we can be our 100% authentic selves without judgment. Um, 
let's see what else as a leader Karen, I, I want to say that side of me is still developing. Um, eight years ago, I started my private practice and it was just me. And then for the first two years, it was just me. And then I brought on an intern. Then I brought on an intern and a part-time therapist. Now I'm up to um, three therapists working for me and an intern. So as my business expands and as my responsibilities expand, I feel like how I need to show up as an administrator and a leader is evolving. So mm -hmm. I think that's where the African-American Leadership Academy for me is coming into play. I feel like I'm growing as um, a leader, but in general, I like to lead by example. So, so again, I'm a worker, so I don't have a lot of patience for people who aren't putting in work. Mm -hmm. Um. I like for people to feel comfortable and safe. So I'm not very tolerant of people who are intolerant of others. Okay, I feel that. Um, as a leader, I extend grace. So um, I would expect people to extend grace, you know, um, who work for me. You know, none of us are always 100% on and on top of our game. Right. So um, I would expect, you know, the grace I extend to them, I would expect them to at times extend to, to their clients. I'm really big on setting boundaries so people know, um, and this goes for me personally and professionally. Um, mm -hmm. I teach people how to treat me. So, you know, while we're extending grace, whether it's personal or professional, I'm, I'm really big on letting people know how I expect to be treated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's consequences and repercussions for not, <laughs> you know, respecting boundaries. I, you know what? That's a whole, that's a whole podcast right there. Cause I do a lot of stuff with boundaries, especially with young people. And mm -hmm. I do wish, you know, I had those conversations when I was 15, 17, 20, I'm 40 now. And, um, you know, I didn't get a lot of information about how to set boundaries. I was really kind of taught to endure a lot and uh comply and yep allow for for adults to kind of be adults and be seen and not heard so mm, come how on, did your British. journey with boundaries begin <clears throat> let me think so I had an interesting life the the first 18 20 I'd say 20 years of my life you know I was the youngest child I was spoiled a lot of people catered to me um <laughs> so I would say in terms of boundaries I had a lot of people protecting me and mm -hmm. looking out for me so I don't think I really felt like I needed boundaries or I, I did not have limits let me say that which was not a bad way to grow up um, uh, unfortunately life happens and things yeah. changed in my family dynamic. And I went from being the youngest spoiled baby girl to really being the only child, not in prison. And suddenly I'm like the oldest and only most responsible. Oh, wow. Son. So that was a real adjustment. So I had to learn how to set boundaries. I didn't have, so I had to go from not having any boundaries to learning how to put some boundaries in place and then having to, um, having to maybe find my voice and, yeah. and, and take my power back and say, hey, mm -hmm. I didn't ask for all this responsibility. I don't want it. It's time for y'all to take it back. You know, as mm -hmm. my siblings got out of jail and got their lives together, um, 
Yeah, so it's my journey with boundaries has been interesting. I would say mm. 35 is when I started to really understand what it meant to set boundaries and that it was okay to say no. Yeah. Um, and that was a very dark and painful time for me because I learned the hard way when you begin to set boundaries and enforce them, you will find out very quickly who is in your corner and who is not. So I lost <laughs> a lot of people in my life during that time. Mm. But the lesson for me was the reward in setting boundaries is that the people who are meant to be in your life will remain. Yes. Nobody likes boundaries, but the people who love you and respect you, they'll fall in line. Mm-hmm. So it's like I lost a whole lifetime of friendships and had to rebuild mm. from 35 to 50 my relationships. And I don't regret it. I think. Part of the reason why, for example, I was able to, um, I was honored with receiving the Social Worker of the Year re- Award uh, for the state of Ohio is because I spent the last 15 years reorganizing my life and restructuring wow. my life and building relationships from scratch so that I could have people in my life who were okay with me setting boundaries. And then that, believe it or not, kind of put me in the place I was when I was a kid where mm-hmm. the sky was the limit in terms of what I wanted to accomplish because I was surrounded again, once again, with safety and security. This is so deep because A lot of your story is resonating with mine, not necessarily in the sense of jail, but in the sense of like space holding. You know, Mm -hmm. I had a lot of big personalities. My parents were divorced at a young age. And and then it felt like emotionally, a lot of the responsibility became mine pretty early Mm -hmm. on. Like I would say around 12, 10 Mm -hmm. to 12 for me, like I was really responsible. You know, I took the responsibility of like my mother. She didn't ask me to, but I did. Um, you know, and my sister had a lot of, um, she's a very, she's, I I think she's a, oh, don't let me get this wrong. A Libra. Is that in October? Anyway, she was, yeah. So like my mom is a Libra too. And so like, there were some big personalities. Like I was raised by mostly, um, opinionated, animated and passionate black women. And so, a lot of times I was the quiet one. People are very surprised to hear that I was like the quiet one. And I think for me, like, it's interesting that I'm in all this work where there's a lot of holding space. I didn't quite go the therapy route. I went the education route, Mm -hmm. Um, but that still requires a level of like holding space. And I just, I just wonder as you're talking, like, how did you, how did you heal? Like a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm healing or I've healed. And like, you're a therapist, you're actively in the process of healing for so many people, but how did you like heal and start to make that shift towards figuring out what you needed and what you wanted without resentment, I guess I would say. Yes. So let's talk about it. And that's an excellent question. So my undergraduate degree is in journalism. So from, yeah, from 21 to 31, I was either working in journalism or marketing and development, programming, that kind of stuff. And I went from working at a television station to working for a couple of nonprofits. I switched careers at 32. So 
I thought I wanted to go to law school. So I went to earn a paralegal certificate. And while I was there, this organization called Casa Guardian at Litems came in. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, oh, this will be a great volunteer position. And I'll do it and put it on my resume when I apply to law school. It totally changed the trajectory of my life. So I had already experienced therapy, obviously, when I had to take like custody of my uh, sister's three kids and and help take care of them and my grandparents. So in my 20s, I sought therapy, but I didn't seek trauma-focused therapy because I didn't know Mm -hmm. about that. So in answer to your question, my, my journey of healing was incremental. I had a couple of therapists. They were decent but they weren't trauma-focused therapists. So then I get into this field, right? And I start learning more about trauma. And I'm like, ooh, okay. So that's what I went through. So while I'm in this journey of developing as a social worker and a therapist, I go to trauma-focused therapy. Okay. That's what my TEDx talk was about. How does a trauma-focused therapist uh, how does a trauma-focused therapist heal from trauma? Oh yeah, we're going to link that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing all of that. I think it's um, it's interesting how our, our lives will shift. You know, I used to do college basketball and then it was mm. like, oh, um, I want to get into workforce development and HR. Even though I was in education to start out, it was like, I actually want to like teach teachers or facilitate, you know, and do that and coach folks in the workforce. And so I think it's interesting how being in those different places, when you think it's just going to be a one-time situation or maybe like the get through gig while you in school, it's like, oh, this actually changes the whole trajectory of my life. And I have to be honest with you. I tell people all the time, being a trauma focused therapist is my calling. It is my ministry. So what Mm -hmm. I would say to you is that it was really God ordering my steps. I Mm -hmm. had a plan, but you know, they say when you make plans, plans, God laughs. So I had a plan on how I wanted to make a difference in the world. I believe that God had different plans for me. Mm -hmm. I never considered um, social work as a profession. I never considered being a therapist as a profession. Never. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually became a guardian ad litem while in school to become a parent. My plan wow. in my thirties was to pursue my dream of becoming an attorney. Mm-hmm. I believe that God had different plans. That volunteer position is what pushed me to become a social worker. Well, I, I probably speak for all of Ohio when I say I'm really, really glad you did. And thinking about like the pandemic, right? Let's talk mm-hmm. about what's going on right now. Um, what are some things that you're noticing? Um, there are lots of trends that has exasperated all the disparities, all the mental health challenges that people were already facing. The COVID has definitely exasperated all of those. Mm-hmm. What are the things that you're seeing the most and what are the lessons that you're seeing in this space right now? So <clears throat> let me go back. Mm-hmm. As soon as the pandemic hit, the first population I was most concerned about was kids. Yeah. Because socialization is a bit part of their educational experience. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified about what was going to happen to kids when they were forced to be home. Yeah. Also, a lot of children's services cases. So I started out early working in child protective services. Mm -hmm. A lot of those cases 
are brought in through the school, right? Through teachers right. noticing stuff, uh, uh, school counselors. Mm -hmm. So I was like, we're going to see an uptick in domestic violence. We're going to see an uptick in child abuse and neglect because now these families are going to be forced to be home day in and day out together. So immediately yeah. I was concerned about the safety for kids. What I saw even in my own practice was a growing concern for parents, in particular single parents, mm -hmm. who maybe aren't great with technology, who work second shift jobs, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to keep their rent paid and food on the table, and they got kids at home. Yeah. Then I worried about older kids, right? Because if you got a single mom that's working second shift or third shift, <laughs> guess who's now going to have to take care of those kids because everybody's being forced to stay home, the right. older sibling. So what's going to happen to the older sibling who now has to parent these younger mm. kids, right? Mm -hmm. So we got all this mental and emotional stuff going on and then boom, the world opens back up. And I knew that our kids were going to struggle yeah. because they've been isolated. I mean, mm -hmm. we have preschool, kindergarten and first graders, their first experiences with school was during the pandemic. Oh my goodness. So I knew that there was going to be some mental and emotional uh, disturbances and, and delays and social yeah. delays. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely right. As the world opened back up, I had kids coming in who never, ever struggle with depression and anxiety. They're now mm. dealing with social anxiety, generalized anxiety, and depression. Yeah. I have kids who were already struggling who are struggling even more. Yeah. But what's most interesting was that I had kids who had never had mental or emotional uh, challenges that are now in therapy. Mm. Kids are having behavior problems that yes. never had behavior problems before. So I think for me, that was the population that I was just from the beginning really concerned about. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of my fears have come to light. Yeah. Um, I also had an uptick in couples coming to see me, right? So imagine Ooh, they was in the house together. <laughs> so imagine this. Listen, and we laughing, but this is serious. No, for real, because so I had it in my house. <laughs> you married mm -hmm. or you in a committed relationship. And yeah, y'all have y'all's challenges, but y'all have time away from each other. Mm -hmm. Now everybody's in the house together. Mm. When I tell you the uptick in couples counseling requests during and even after the pandemic there were people who came out of the pandemic like you know what I really don't even like you right forget love I don't yeah, like you I don't even like you you are not the one for me I made the wrong choice 20 years ago and it was wow. we could the pandemic for those revelations I mean it definitely was this like microcosm of like putting everything under pressure and I talk a lot about not necessarily trauma responses, but like our behavioral responses when we're under pressure and increased stimuli. And we will act out in some of those ways that we learned as a young person. And sometimes Aaron calls it her survivor vigilante, but like, you know, you don't know how they say, let people know how you are and like test other folks in relationship, like when they're hungry or when they're having a hard time or when they're down on their luck or when they oh, feel, now. you know, victimized, like learn people in them before you marry them, because you want to make sure that you can, you like them and all you of those things. Absolutely. And, and let me be, let me be very clear. Mm -hmm. We had a shared traumatic experience do, during yeah. the pandemic 
in yeah. particular people of color because if you mm-hmm. remember just as um the pandemic hit we had all this social injustice and unrest and they declared had, uh, racism a public health crisis at the same it was like in the same month it was um, almost that march of 2020 it was like the social justice uprisings that happened i think in like may or june maybe okay the george floyd situation yes the murder of george floyd and so that they took that to the streets that was like the summer the whole summer was protests especially in columbus but before that it was like racism has declared a public health crisis and then boom the pandemic mm-hmm. yep health disparities we had a mod aubrey that happened mm-hmm. during the pandemic mm-hmm. um the young lady in kentucky uh brianna taylor so we were dealing with the pandemic and we're watching videos of people mm. that look like us being murdered. When I tell you that, that those three years will go down in history as the most traumatic time in probably mm. all of our lives and, and hopefully, prayerfully, we'll never see that level of distress mm-hmm. and trauma again. But mm-hmm. we all lived through that too. So yeah. just sprinkle that in there. We did. And I just, I think, um, you know, on the conversation of like healing, I think it's just so important to, to reiterate, like we weren't made for, and we weren't built for this type of, of trauma, like everything that is occurring, there are still probably studies. I'm sure you're seeing the, the long-term outcomes. We're still just seeing the short-term outcomes Uh of that time and it's not quite over you know people Mm -hmm. are still getting it it is still causing maybe it doesn't shut a whole event down but it will stop certain people from attending if they do test positive you know so it's still I just bought COVID tests today I'm traveling you know so like it's not like it's we're out of the park I will never travel again without a mask um certain events if they're trying to be more inclusive and honor will either have testing or masks mandatory you know at different Mm -hmm. events for like the big conference events I don't think we'll ever be able to like re-congregate in the same way that we used to at least not without some anxiety or like some testing that happens afterwards or quarantining like there are certain things that are kind of like part of part of the daily thing that Mm -hmm. never were before and so for me as a trauma-focused therapist, it's all about images. This is why I warn people when there's video mm-hmm. that is on the internet and social media about someone getting killed or, you know, CNN. I remember they were running just daily. You were seeing videos Ugh. of, of um, healthcare workers crying, talking about the people, especially in New York that, With you know, were dying. Faces masked up. Yeah, oh. and, and, and not having proper... Uh, uh, Yes. Mm. I mean, those images, it's kind of like um, the uh, when the World Trade Center Mm -hmm. that happened, like those are images that we saw during that those three years of the pandemic and the social unrest. They're Mm going to live with us forever. Mm -hmm. So what happens with that residue? Yeah, the world's back open. But have we really healed from what we saw and experienced? That's such a good question. So that's what led me and our executive director at the National Association of Social Workers in Mm -hmm. Ohio, Danielle Smith. Mm -hmm. We created holding spaces for Mm -hmm. BIPOC social workers, 
but also social workers in general, because mm. we were the people, the mental health professionals and the, the, the doctors and nurses, we were the people that were holding space for people who were in physical, mental, emotional distress. Yeah. But the question is who held space for us? Right. So when the world opened back up, yeah, everybody may, it may appear everybody's going back to normal, but what's happening to the doctors, the nurses, mm -hmm. people who just worked in the hospital, right? Assistants, right. administrators, what happened to the therapists and the psychologists and the counselors? Like mm -hmm. who's taking care of us? So we created these quarterly holding spaces where people can just come and it's free. You don't even have to be a member of NASW, but it's for, for us social workers of color and social workers in general to have a safe space to just heal, talk, vent, process, cry, yell, share Beautiful. ideas. And I love it's that free. space. And that's important. That is important. I do know there were some spaces created virtually um yes. to do that during the pandemic that's i mean that's the reason why we started the rest collective um aaron and i started it because we realized that leaders were full of tension and they weren't able to think freely and dream and rest and so we created and that heal. And, and heal and a lot of our clients um we had a couple of therapist clients that were the transformational coaching just winds up being like, how can we support you and a lot of holding space, you know, and just processing, processing with somebody that understands externally processing, where I don't think we always have a lot of time to do that. And then as the pandemic happened, people were trying to process and people were like, well, me too, you know, like there wasn't enough give and take in room. So it, it has just been, I don't think there can be enough or more. Uh, I, I don't think we could ever say there's enough holding spaces type mm -mm. of things happening. No. And so I'm so glad y'all created that. Yes. So what does that look like for you? You know, we're, we're virtual. So you're professional. We were virtual for the last few years. I hope you're getting back into like, oh yeah, I'm in my spaces. office. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> when you were going through that, like, how did you separate, you know, restorative time for yourself, friend time, active rest, rest, how did you separate that from your work? Because I mean, we're in this thing, like you're, this is your work, you're going mm -hmm. home and you're experiencing this trauma too, as a yes. collective. How did you, how did you separate that? I mean, we all have therapists, hopefully like get, get you a therapist that you can trust. Cause that's hard yes. too. Yes. So I did not find a therapist through this particular time. Mm. Um, and I'm a person who I've never been in therapy with one therapist for years. I'm a person that goes certain periods of time when there's something going on, or I feel like there's something that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. During that time, I didn't feel like it would be helpful. And I'm gonna tell you why. Please because me, me and why. that therapist, we might as well just go out and get a drink. Ain't no sense in me paying <laughs> you a copay because you're going through the same shit I'm going through. So I don't need a therapist. Let's just go out for drinks or let's right. get on virtually. You know, when we couldn't meet face to face, let's just get on virtually and, you know, talk shit and laugh and joke and cry mm -hmm. if we need to. So I created my own holding spaces. I have okay. friends who weren't in the profession. I have friends who were in the profession and I just constantly, because I I live alone too. So mm -hmm. we could do a whole podcast on what happened, the yes. impact of the pandemic on people who lived alone. Ooh, yes. Right. Right. So there was months 
where I wasn't comfortable having face-to-face contact with even mm. my daughter. And I would have her pass stuff through the window or I would tell mm. her to come to the window and I'd be like, I love you, but I can't let you in. Right. I don't know what you out here doing. <laughs> exactly. Come on now. You know these young people around these streets. So I'm Just like, I love here. you, baby, but mm, 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 I can't let you in. Um, right. But I had to create spaces virtually for myself so that mm. I can stay connected and not feel alone. Wow. Mm-hmm. Did you get you a body pillow? No, I did not. That's I the one. I'm, listen, the body pillow yeah. is... I never thought about a body pillow. The body pillow and the weighted blanket. Life so I did not get either, but I will tell you, as, as the world opened up, two things that I learned about myself. I went into the pandemic very independent, mm-hmm. being excited and happy that I was single, being okay in that space. Right. I came out of the pandemic with a wheel a durable power of attorney for healthcare. Okay. Uh, I came out dating crazy because I was like, I don't want to <laughs> die alone. That's the lesson I learned. <laughs> he had you out here on Tinder, Bumble. You was like, let me try I, whatever. I was like, that was like, I want to die alone. I would be sitting in my apartment like, how many days would it take for somebody <laughs> to find me if something happened to me? Uh, that's that's okay. how that's how the pandemic blessed mm. me like okay stephanie it's okay to be you know that strong black woman and independent but everybody mm-hmm. needs somebody you know what that's real and i i am grateful because i actually uh leaned into my relationship more during the pandemic um oh, i love that uh, you know i'm really independent i'm gonna tell you this right now i'm really independent and there are days when i'm like you know what but I had roommates. And so I'm, I think I, I have this luxury of, and I got a late during the pandemic, I got a late in life diagnosis of autism and ADHD. And so it was, it was an interesting, like, and a therapist that is neurodivergent and a woman of color. And so like, I was like, okay. So I started processing those things. And I just realized that like, I had to deal with, and that's why I asked you the question earlier, because I had to deal with a lot of uh, resentment around having to hold space when I didn't necessarily give my consent and mm. so like it was one Come of those on things, now yeah I was like mad about it and I didn't realize I was mad about it and I finally had someone who understood it my wife's a therapist you know like I finally had someone who understood it and here I am upset when the truth is like I was upset about past experiences and so when I got to processing that and putting that in perspective, I was like, oh man, like on the surface, I didn't look like I needed anything, but internally I was like, not okay. And now I finally have someone that's asking me a lot of questions and mm-hmm. wants to know about me and how I'm doing. And I would be like, I don't know. Like sometimes she would ask me how I'm feeling and I wouldn't, I wouldn't know and immediately. And I may be showing up as irritable or something. Cause you know, ADHD looks different on black folks especially black women and Mm -hmm. so I was like you know I don't I don't know how I'm feeling and so I started getting real comfortable processing that more quickly internally and being able to communicate that because Mm. a lot of times I would just if I was at home or by myself like I could process that my logical side needed some time to process that but having to process that with someone else that you love and care about and want to have you know, nonviolent communication with and like, yes. when you, that's all you've known. Like it's, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole process. And being able itself. to communicate emotionally. So mm-hmm. I'm going to show something to you. Hold on. Let me grab it. I'm glad I'm in with? my office. Yep. It's the feeling with 
It's my favorite look, thing ever. Keep, Show look, it. Listen, I keep it on my desk. You see it's laminated and yes. I wipe it up with Clorox every day. Clorox wipes every day, people, one. in between my sessions because whether you're seven years old or 70, mm -hmm. we are not raised, trained, and conditioned to put words to mm -hmm. our feelings. We're taught, you know, mad, sad, mm -hmm. bad, you know, but not there's so many different words that can capture how you're feeling and you can also mm. feel more than one thing at one time so yes. i'm really big on teaching giving my clients emotional language to be able to articulate what they're feeling and also connect it to not just their thoughts but body sensations yes that's when you really develop your power if you can mm -hmm. feel anger rising inside of you if you can feel sadness gathering mm -hmm. inside of you and you can catch it before it manifests into behavior. You listen, you bad. You a bad mamma jamma. Yes, that is an ongoing learning. <laughs> it is. An yes, ongoing learning for is. sure. So I use it with adults too. Mm -hmm. We need it. I mean, a lot of times we weren't asked earnestly. We yes. weren't asked how we were feeling. We were asked how we were feeling. And then if we answer, we were told not to talk or you know, only speak when you're being spoken to, mm -hmm. or did I ask you all of that or whatever? We didn't know what to put words to our feelings. Come on. And like you said earlier, um, one, people of color, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, Latino people, Asian people, African-American people, uh, immigrants, you know, mm -hmm. depending on where they come from, their emotions look different how mm -hmm. they process their feelings looks different so when you say you have adhd and sometimes you come across irritable someone can think you're angry when that's not even what you're feeling i might be actually hurt you know or sad mm -hmm. or upset or anxious mm -hmm. and i'm showing irritability and i just need to go put my sound canceling headphones on and not talk to anybody mm -hmm. And, and, and that can also happen with people that have anxiety, mm -hmm. people with anxiety, especially in the black community, they may come across as irritable and they may really be anxious. Yes. So imagine what it feels like to live in a world where you're struggling with understanding how you're feeling, but you have people telling you, no, you're angry. You seem angry. What? No, I'm not angry. Well, you like, seem I'm not. Angry. Are you sure? And I'm it's like, not. okay, now I'm angry because you right. try to tell me how the fuck I feel. That's exactly <laughs> it. Now I'm angry. You don't ask me three times. I've been trying to tell you I'm not. No, really, I'm not. No, really. Okay, now I am. Exactly. Now I'm pissed. I'm annoyed. Yes, yes. Totally. It goes just like that. Yes. Oh my goodness. This is church. All right. So I'm going to ask a few more questions. One thing that I would say is, um, how do you handle conflict? So let's talk about how you handle conflict. Um, I like to say that I'm in the healing. I'm not healed completely, mm -hmm. but I'm in the healing phase of my life. So how I handle conflict now is completely different than yeah. how I handle conflict, you know, a year ago, two As years it ago, be. whatever. <laughs> right. We growing over here. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, how do you handle conflict? Um, and let's talk about, you know, on the receiving end first, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about when you maybe have caused you know, harm or hurt. Yes. So let me just put this out here. In so many ways, becoming a therapist has not only saved my life, but probably saved some other people's <laughs> because the way I communicate now is uh -huh. totally different than the way I communicated um, really as a, a teenager, 
in mm-hmm. college, even in my 20s. Um, once I entered this field and was able to see myself in a lot of ways through other people, it was yeah. very humbling. Right. So let me say that. That and me being going to therapy at certain points in my life has really changed the way I communicate. I'm mm-hmm. really big on the I statements and using feeling words to let people know how I feel. I also understand that anger is a surface emotion. Mm-hmm. So I really am intentional about not choosing that word unless I truly am angry. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's so, you know, on that feeling where there's all sorts of words you can use. So Mm -hmm. it forces me to really pay attention to, okay, what's really going on with you, Stephanie? Were you triggered in some way? That, that kind of stuff. So I am really big on letting people know emotionally how I've experienced an interaction. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that disarms people because it's very hard to argue and debate with somebody when they say, I feel sad when you, you know, then describe the behavior. It's really hard for people to argue mm-hmm. with you in that way. So I find power in communicating that way. That's true. When I have harmed other people, and again, I'm a contribute, I'm a attribute this to becoming a, a really good therapist, which I mm-hmm. think I am. I think we can say that. Thank you. <laughs> We can say that. Um, I love for people to tell me when I've messed up mm. because conflict is uncomfortable, but on the other side of conflict, conflict can be real understanding and healing, right? Yeah. So if I mess up and you find the courage mm-hmm. to confront me with it, it like makes me tear up. I get super emotional. I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to fix this. Because often it's miscommunication. Like I said, someone thinking I'm angry when I might be anxious, Mm -hmm. right? Or distracted because I have ADHD inattentive type also. So, you know, it it, usually it's some sort of miscommunication. I was distracted, but they've experienced me in a way that I I didn't want them to experience me. And I get emotional when people give me the opportunity to fix my mistakes. It's like when you can actually tangibly feel repair being available, it yes. is really beautiful. It is beautiful. And I'm glad you you feel that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, the first people I practiced this on was my family. I spent a whole year and they Ooh. didn't know this. This was me doing bootleg <laughs> research, right? <laughs> I said, I'm about to practice these newfound skills on my family. And for a whole year, because we're a family that has like, like a biting sense of humor, crack mm-hmm. jokes. When yeah, we we're really upset about something with a hee-hee, right? That kind of family. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I feel sad. I started with my daughter, then my siblings. Uh, my mom's really good with feelings. So she was fine. We're, we're screwed up. My mom's fine. So each one of them, even my daughter would laugh at me. Like my daughter would be like, okay, mom. And I would just have to repeat the statement. No, seriously, I feel sad. And she'd be like, okay. Mm. Same thing with my siblings. Oh, get out of here. You tripping. There you go. Trying to be a therapist with me. They would crack jokes. Yeah. But I was consistent because I knew what I was doing was shaping behavior. Yes. We had operated as a family in a particular way. And I had to just keep repeating this pattern and eventually they would fall in line. And that's exactly what happened. So we all communicate differently because I started communicating differently. That is like, so we talk about culture as, um, and Javier Sanchez 
uses this definition as um, customs, rituals, traditions, and language, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you think about shifting the culture of a family, that's a big task, right? Like that's a really big task. And you really had to be consistent and committed to like the outcome that you knew was possible. They didn't know that was possible and they were, they were roasting you for it. But then eventually they were yeah. like, oh, like, let me, let me, let me connect here. You know, when mm -hmm. we, when we are saying how we feel, that's a bid for connection, you know? And so you were changing the culture of your family and they didn't even know it, but now y'all probably talk differently. And we do, but think about this. Cause trust me, my family, we still got issues. Mm -hmm. But how we communicate when our feelings are hurt has forever shifted. That's some generational like healing. Yes. So guess what they would do? If I said something that was out of line or I made an offhanded joke or I said something uh, hurtful, but put a he he at the end, what do they do? Throw right back in my face what I had been doing with them and I will receive it. I mm -hmm. would say, man, I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. I apologize. Yep. And they'd be like, uh-huh, you know, they still trying to, you know what I'm saying, yeah. throw jabs, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. But guess what? I'm letting them know. Yes, call me on my shit too. Transforming culture. Look at you. I love it. Yes. All right, so I guess two more questions that I want to ask you. Uh, okay. What would I be surprised to know about you Okay. that maybe you haven't shared yet? Okay, well, you've already learned that I have a potty mouth. You did not like know it. that before today. Mm -mm. Um, I would say the other thing is I actually wanted to major in musical theater in college. Ah. Yes. So I was one of those really bright kids that had not the best attitude. Okay. So in middle school, people saw that I had a particular skill set. I was articulate. I could sing. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's put her in acting. Let's get her in the choir to help keep her out of trouble because that mouth of hers is vicious. <laughs> so I okay. like fell in love with theater and music. So when I went to high school, I continued with like musical theater and being in mm -hmm. plays and being in show choir. And it really was a blessing for me. It um, helped take some of those characteristics that people thought were negative and it turned it into a positive. And it really did help keep me out of trouble. The problem is, <laughs> and my mom and grandparents came to all my stuff, but when it was time to go off to college, I was like, I think I want to major in musical theater. And my grandfather was like, now listen, me and grandma love that you can sing and act. You know, we came to every one of your events, but uh, grandma and papa is not paying for you to go to college Aww. and major in musical theater. Yes. So that was pretty much the mm. end of my musical theater career. That's interesting. My mom was an educator and me and my sister both could sing. I um, was in the Cincinnati Conservatory in music. So I was trained oh. classically. And so I'm like, you saw my face light up. I was like, oh, come on, theater nerd. I love yes. that. Oh, um, shoot. Let's go to some show tunes. We're going to have to hook it yes. up. We'll yes. Do you go I, to karaoke and judge people? Oh, For years, absolutely. I couldn't even go to karaoke. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I keep yes. it all in my head, but we'll we'll have a look and we'll know. Yeah, um, exactly. But like, you know, and people be like, karaoke is not for you, the people that can sing. And I'd be like, whatever, we all came here. We're all on the playing field, like whatever. Yes, don't um, hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> don't get on the mic. Um, but <laughs> yeah, like I love, I love show tunes. I love all of that. Basically my head is pretty much a musical. Like the world yes. is a musical. 
Yes. So um, what's your favorite like theater that you got to be in? Like your show? So, uh, haha. So um, I was uh, Yenta the Matchmaker in, um, oh my goodness, I forgot the name of that musical. It's not The King and I. Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. So imagine me as an old Jewish grandma. <laughs> and listen, I took it so serious. I got I tapes love it. from the director so I could like perfect my accent. And I had Jewish people coming up to me like, oh my God, you sound like my grandma. You sound like my great grandma. So like I took theater so serious. That is so cool. My mom, she was like, and I got to, you know, be in the show choir and everything, but she was like, yeah. you're not playing school. That's what she told me and my sister when we both wanted to go to, I know ACPA here is here in Columbus. We wanted yes. to go to SCPA, the School for the Creative Performing Arts in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you're not going there playing school. And we were like, they have core classes. Like, we just want to go and sing and dance. And she was like, absolutely not. So we got it in how we could get it in. But um, yes, uh, and we, you know what? I'm time. not mad at my grandparents because it was their money, but it right. does make me wonder what my life would look like. Would I have been like a singing, dancing lawyer? I don't know. We don't know. We'll never I mean, know. I was getting recruited by Wright State, you know what I mean? So oh, I could have done. I mean, I played division one basketball. I still went to a small school because I like that small school atmosphere because my school was like graduating class of like 101. So I did like that small school atmosphere, but I always wonder, you know, what would have happened because now I do so much art and performing and I like, there's a component of my business structure that is my trade name for art, like as a creator. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe I don't, I, I get to It's never too late it. though. I feel I mean, like I'm out here. every day we wake up and we're able to get out of the bed and we have our right minds like we have an opportunity to do whatever we want and I and I think that's the other thing I learned during the pandemic mm -hmm. like the sky's the limit I think that time of solitude helped me figure out what the next stage of my life was going to be because I just turned 50 last year so I took those years and really took stock mm -hmm. of where I'd come from where I was at and where I wanted to go for sure yeah, I'm working on book three, the poetry book. Um, so we had talked about that a little bit. And I do improv comedy and drumming and sound baths. Like I do some See? cool stuff. So I do get to do the art and I'm really glad I get to experience that. But I also really appreciate the work ethic that I have and the, the acumen around business. And I was a math major undergrad. So like, I appreciate all of that information. Yeah, I can make the math math and I can always also do the creative piece. So you tap into your left and right brain. That just Absolutely. means you're brilliant. I just, I, you know, I was in, in tap dance and I was in gymnastics, I think before I did soccer. And I just really appreciate my parents giving me lots mm -hmm. of opportunities. And if I said, I didn't like something. They didn't say, well, you have to stay there. Like, I think mm. I got on the bars and gymnastics at like six or seven. And I had, um, I had a full body cast at six months. And I don't know if a lot of people know that about me, but like, once wow. I started to be active and do soccer and stuff like that, if I said, I didn't want to do that anymore, my parents weren't like, you have to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they were like, tell me why. And then they'd be like, all right, well, you can go do this or what do you want to do they always yes. had me in extracurricular activities and I really appreciated that I you know what I appreciate my mom for making those opportunities possible um mm -hmm. we weren't rich so a lot of my 
artistic experiences happened at recreation centers and I'm grateful yep. for those experiences. Um, where'd you go to high school? I went to Seven Hills for seventh, eighth and ninth grade in Cincinnati. And then I went to Cincinnati oh. Hills Christian Academy. I got like academic scholarships there. Okay. My mom okay. did have to drive me there and back, but then we wound up moving. I think it was my 10th grade year. We wound up moving like in walkable distance from Seven Hills. So either I okay. could walk home or yeah, I could walk home or she, I could get a ride home from a teammate. Yeah. Then when we had to go to CHCA, she was driving me out like 15 minutes every day okay. there and back. Yeah. So you grew up in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. So I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to fifth grade. And okay. then I begged my mom to go to public school because I was tired of wearing a uniform. So I went uh -huh. to, uh, this school doesn't even exist anymore. It's uh, where the old Afrocentric was on Livingston. It was called Mohawk Middle School. So I went yeah. there from six to eight. That's when I started cutting up because I got a little bit okay. of freedom. I was out of those Catholic schools. I started turning up Livingston. a little bit. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and then I went to Columbus Alternative High School for mm -hmm. uh, high school. And that was a college prep high school, but we had a real strong performing arts program and that was mm -hmm. before um Fort Hayes opened okay yeah I think Fort Hayes might have opened before I graduated but when I started cause like we had a strong performing arts program so we would go to competitions and stuff so mm -hmm. like you I had this great breadth and depth of mm -hmm. experiences yeah. And I swear it's made me a really well-rounded person. And it's given me a lot of things that I can tap into when we talk about self-care and mm -hmm. how to distract yourself when you're distressed. Like I still love to sing, whether it's yes. karaoke or I'm singing at home, I'm singing in the car. It brings me joy. Oh, we got the next group out and right here. They oh, come have on, let's wonderful... go. But you were classically trained. Like, you know what I'm saying? That don't matter when I'm singing like Jill Scott, like that doesn't matter. <laughs> So look, I, I couldn't go to you to carry karaoke. You'd be judging me. <laughs> nah, I'm I'm like, judging like a little bit, happening. but then I, I try to I try to come, you know, curious. I hope I'm in the right place, regulated, and so I can show up as my favorite. So I will try to be curious and open and like not attached. I think when I was yeah. playing college basketball and coaching at the college level, I was really attached to like winning judgment and being right and now yes. like what is beautiful is I'm I'm not attached to any of that I'm more attached to relationship and experiences mm. so I don't really care how Thank anybody you. sounds to be honest like I'm gonna be like oh and you know I might be like oh okay and then I'll set my mind to it and I'm like okay we're just in here having fun and I have to remind myself of that sometimes but not as much as I used to yes you know what? We were meant to meet because I'm that person that's at karaoke now. The person who sucks, I'll be like, "Come on now, yeah." Right? You I'm you over there inspiring my them? My friends like, "Why are you hyping that person up?" I'm like, "Listen, we all got our talents and gifts. We can't all be Whitney Houston." <laughs> <laughs> that's the courage and bravery to exactly. get up there. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Yes, Indeed. extending people grace. And there I'm with is. you at this stage and place in my life. Um, my favorite person, or the way I like to show up, is a non judgmental, you know, free space for people to be who they are because I want them to show up for me and love me in that way. Um, very inclusive. I tend to, I tend to, um, want to see people at their best and do their best. So mm -hmm. I want to create spaces for people where they feel the freedom to do that. Cause I want those spaces for myself. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm rooting for everybody. I think life has a way of humbling you. I've been 
humbled on stage, you know, around my voice sometimes, like classically trained or not, I can miss a note. And so yes. I think just, just having more life experience under my belt will get you to the place where you're like, you know what? I'm I'm not anybody to judge that. And I, I hope, I hope you feel good about that. I hope you gave it your all. I hope you come back. You know what I mean? Like, amen. you know, amen. Mm-hmm. so going into that from, from that place, we'll go from that place. Let's talk through, and this is the situational hot seat. This is where I ask you to give me a scenario and this could be real or imagined mm-hmm. where something has occurred and you want to, you know, externally process or hear from me what I would have done. And then we can talk about what you did or what you would do um, if it's an imagined scenario. But you give me so a scenario. So I come up with the imagined scenario and I ask yep. you what you would do? Yes. Now, this can also be something that has happened and you're reflecting back on it and saying maybe what you did and what you would do now, whatever, whatever you can think of, throw it at me. I will talk about like my lived experience and what I would do in that moment if I have had a similar experience and then I want to hear what you did or would have done differently okay so I have a good one and it's a combination of true and not true because I you know want to protect people's confidentiality so I used to work for this community mental health organization and I had been assigned to work with this couple and uh, one of the couples was an undocumented male immigrant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people who don't know us, know Black people, where do they learn about Black people? The media. Right. So this gentleman was convinced that Black people fed crack to their babies in bottles. And because I was African-American, this gentleman was not comfortable with me providing therapeutic services to them as a couple. Mm -hmm. What would you do in that situation? And then when you tell me what you would do in that situation, so this person wanted to fire me, right? Mm -hmm. What would you do in that situation? Then I'm going to tell you what I did. It's interesting because at 40, what I would do now is I'd be like, okay. And I'd probably like give them to someone else. Like, you know, I, I'm always like watching the shows, right? I was just telling you, I was watching New Amsterdam. Yes. And if there's, you know, several black and brown folks and they're like, we don't want a black doctor, then okay, we don't have any, you know, available or something like that. I think with your own practice, it's a little easier to work through that and do that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I would probably give it away. Um, in that sense, because one of my rules at this stage in my life where I've built up, you know, like I don't need that income. Right. So for one person, for one couple, I would probably, you know, have a conversation, um, maybe say something like, um, I would get curious around it and, and ask some questions if that was available. Mm -hmm. Um, generally what I find is if people aren't willing to have those conversations and they're pretty committed to those belief systems. Um, Depending on what level of immigration or where they're coming from, Mm -hmm. there's lots of services around the state or the city that I would probably send them to. Um, But I don't, I don't give it that much time now. 
because one of my biggest rules is like, I will not work with unwilling people or people that I have to prove my worth to. Mm. It's kind of, it's, it's, and that's a lot from the DEI space. Cause I do a lot mm-hmm. of work in the DEI space and I'm not, I'm just not doing that. That takes a lot of energy. I don't need to prove anything to anyone mm-hmm. at this point. And so I probably would just walk away with some grace and dignity and wish them well. And, you know, make sure I might, you know, pedally check in a couple of years to see if they still together, but you know, I walk away. I know that's right. Mm-hmm. So some, this was again, mixed with truth and untruth. Mm-hmm. But I, what I will say in general is that I knew this, a, a, a similar situation happened to me before I even entered school to earn my Mm -hmm. master's in social work so I was working as a mental health paraprofessional and I knew at that moment that I was going to be a good therapist because my boss and my boss's boss was Mm -hmm. furious about this scenario right Mm -hmm. what I said was that anyone entering the therapy space has the right to self-determination and autonomy I do not think it would be beneficial to that man and that family to force him to work with someone that he doesn't respect or feel safe with. It is not my job to reprogram him about crack cocaine, bottles and babies in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. What is important to me is that he gets the help that he needs. So yes, the administration, thank God, was in support of me. They wanted to make this person deal with me, right? Mm-hmm. I said, but then we're not giving them what they need. So I can put my ego and pride aside and step aside so that this individual can get and this family can get what they need. It ain't personal. And I knew then I was going to be a good therapist because to this day, I believe it is so important for people to feel comfortable with the people that they are bearing their souls to at times sharing the most intimate details of their life. Mm -hmm. Why would you hold somebody hostage in that space and make them talk to somebody that they don't like and or respect? It would never be safe for them or you. And guess what? It wasn't about me. Mm Mm-hmm. I know I, was, so I don't I know I didn't speed my daughter crack cocaine when she was a baby. I'm not taking that what? personal. And if you want to go through life thinking that that's how black people operate with their kids, good luck with that. Don't repeat that to nobody else though cuz they may not extend the grace to you right. when I extend it. You but might yes. catch hands. Exactly. I it was interesting. I did this um facilitation with this group in Philadelphia and a lot of them were African first generation folks and there was some tension in the group there because they also had seen the media coming over mm-hmm. and they didn't understand that regardless of their accent, that if they were pulled over or if they were seen in the community, people would think that they were black or African-American. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we're not African-American. Like they were so clear, like we're African, like they were so clear about it. And we had mm-hmm. one of these really wonderful conversations where we got to um, talk about all the socialization messages that they received about black folks and black folks were sitting at the table with them. They were like, that's not true. Like that, that just isn't true. And it was like mm-hmm. all these stereotypes and all these media socialization, like messages and mm-hmm. biased messages that we get about Africans. And then also about black folks. And it was just this really wonderful healing moment where there were like a hundred people in the room 
That was to date one of the most powerful facilitations I've ever experienced. I bet you that was beautiful. Cause again, remember what I said earlier, a lot of times like issues and problems in relationships come down to miscommunication yes. or misinterpretation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, but it has been- also, but also even back then I knew my value and worth. Sir, that has nothing to do with me. I'm not carrying that burden. I'm gonna let you carry that cross. <laughs> as the as the young kids say now, get somebody else to do it. Yes. <laughs> it ain't me. Absolutely okay. not. <laughs> well, it has been a joy talking to you. I'm so grateful to hear from you. This has been a therapy session, a nap, a protest, a kickback. It's been all of those things. Aww. It has been delightful. You Thank are a delight. Um, I will share in the little blurb, all the things where they can find you, your website, all of that stuff. Thank you so much for being here with me. And I wish you continued healing. And thank you. Thank you for all the work that you have. And I can say that knowingly. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I feel the same way and definitely share my TEDx. I got you. I'm going to share your Yes. Thank you. You're my, you're my best friend in my head. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take that. I'll take it.